This is Teaching the Teacher, Episode 2. I'm Nandeva Trombley. I'm a retired English teacher who's so proud of my former students, I decided to make a podcast about them, whether I know what I'm doing or not. Today's guest is coming to us from Bonn, Germany, where she works with the United Nations, tackling the challenges of adaptation to climate change. Fatine Taufik is internationally recognized as an important young person working in this field. Before we get going, a disclaimer. Fatine is speaking in her own capacity and not on behalf of the UNFCCC. And a note, she's also simplifying some very complex topics for the context of this podcast. This podcast series is called Teaching Teacher. I am a teacher who is ready to give up the spot at the front of the classroom, and why not? My former students are all over the world doing amazing things. It's time for them to teach me about stuff. Today, I'm here with Fatin Taufig, Associate Program Officer at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. In uh, 2019, she was named a, a top 30 under 30 sustainability leader and um, was one of 100 outstanding young leaders who earned a green ticket to attend the first ever United Nations Youth Climate Summit and the Secretary General's Climate Action Summit. To prepare to talk to Fatine, I've been doing a lot of homework that she sent me. I've been reading the Paris Accords and lots of United Nations publications and just pinching myself because Fatine, as a teenager, was a debater on our debate team and came along to uh, lots of Model United Nations conferences, including twice we went to Harvard to Model UN. And for those things, you would research and you would write policy position papers and you draft resolutions. And as a student, um, go to these simulations and and talk about uh, diplomatic policy. And I, I want to say, who would think that you would end up actually working for the UN? Well, I would think you could would do anything because you can do anything. But you know, that's kind of amazing that this is what you're doing. And you know, I remember being with you with your your notebook on your knee and you, with your ballot up to uh, voting on things um, at uh, at Model United Nations simulation. So, um, when you went to those events, did you think, ah, I want to? draft policy for real. I want to work for the United Nations. No, not at all. I mean, they always were very cool and very exciting. But um, honestly, at that point, I never felt that that was the best fit, especially in those circumstances. I was always very reluctant to actually say anything. I felt like I couldn't actually imagine what the policy positions were so I could vote on things. But I wasn't one of the more imaginative um, and model UNers who would, you know, make up all these things and start wars and be very creative with these things. So <laughs> I don't know. It, it never even crossed my mind. Um, I always thought it would be a cool path forward, but I didn't envision that for myself at all. And you're very discreet the way you say imaginative policies, but you were very serious <laughs> and you weren't going to stand and shoot your mouth off if you didn't know what you were talking about. And I remember you researching very impeccably um, your positions and and thinking about things very deeply, so that's kind of fun. Um, so, can you can you tell me um, what the UNFCCC 
is. Um, yeah, let's start there. Sure, so the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or as we like to call it, the UNFCCC. There are a lot of acronyms and abbreviations in our process, and it's, you know, you can never keep on top of all of them. Um, it's an agreement that was signed in 1992, but actually ratified and entered into force 1994, um, which attempted to deal with this emerging issue of climate change. And it has almost universal um, membership. I think currently it's 197 parties. And so essentially it's all of these countries um, through this agreement working together to both mitigate and adapt to climate change. And the overarching um, objective of that convention was to ultimately prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And so as part of that convention, a secretariat body was created to facilitate the negotiations and all of the work um, under that convention that happens at the international level. So that's where I work. Okay. So you know, lots of young people say that they are concerned about the environment and maybe they, uh, you know, and I've seen in the classroom there, get really adamant about not using a plastic straw or maybe they'll um, stop, uh, stop to think about fast fashion or maybe reduce their meat consumption to help the environment. But you have taken your activism to a very different sphere. Can you tell me about your approach? Um, yeah, I wouldn't really call it activism, I guess. It's just this is the avenue that opened up to act on this issue. And so I pursued it. Um, and I think it's definitely complementary with all of those individual level actions. But also climate change is obviously a systemic issue. And I was also always very interested in the politics of it. And I think that it has to be um, solved at the international level. There has to be international cooperation on it because you know, it's something that transcends all types of borders. Now, I think a lot of ordinary folks, um, a lot of people sway between panic about climate change and hopelessness and maybe stay sane. Some of us just try not to think about it. Um, do, do you think that um, the pandemic has given people maybe even more amnesia? Um, I hope not. I think what I hope people get from the pandemic is realizing how these systemic issues really affect everyone, realizing how different groups of the population are especially vulnerable to these types of issues. I mean, a lot of the groups that are disproportionately vulnerable to the virus are also disproportionately vulnerable to climate change. And it's been so difficult to act quickly enough and on a scale that's big enough to support their needs and you know mount this effective response to the pandemic. So I think, I hope that people realize now that we need to respond differently to climate change. We need to be more proactive and um, not take the same reactive approach that we took to the pandemic. So I, I get that people are probably a little bit tired of dealing with these all-encompassing, very anxiety-inducing issues, but I don't think that burying our head further in the sand is the solution here. It, I, I just often think about you, um, it, how exciting it was that you went to the youth summit 
in in New York and and everybody was buzzing about it and we were all proud of you and and so quickly the pandemic hit and um, the, the world's focus changed. There was a real sense at that time when you were in New York, you know, that that was what everybody was talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and and I wondered how much you've um, been affected by the fact that people maybe are a bit distracted by other things. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think there's definitely been a shift in focus, but also people all over the place seem to be drawing attention to it. I don't know if this is my impression because I'm absorbed in this work or if it's actually um, other people are getting the sense too, but I think people are constantly drawing attention to the fact that you know stimulus packages need to respond to climate change and help build back that better and not you know entrench the same issues that have been there before. But wait a second, hang on. Can you tell me what it was like to be at that youth summit? <laughs> Um, it was really surreal in a lot of ways. I mean, I never expected to be in the General Assembly in New York, um, sorry, in the United Nations headquarters in New York. And it was really, yeah, just surreal to see other young people from all over the world come together. A lot of them were saying what they were doing on climate change, and it was really so varied and so diverse the range of people there and what they're working on i mean i was sitting next to both i think a medical student from somewhere in scandinavia who's working on the connections on health and climate change and also to a i think 15 year old indigenous uh girl from bolivia who was you know working on this in her community so it was really inspiring in that sense and also getting to go to the leader summit the next day was also just I don't know it that was the most like model UN I guess because it was the most formal and actually the delegates you know giving their speeches and stuff I was sitting I think a meter away from Angela Merkel it was just I don't know oh my god <laughs> real not model oh my gosh yeah do you admire her I do can I ask you about Greta Thunberg sure Okay, um, for people outside of your realm, um, sort of the most identifiable person um, in the last couple of years has been Greta Thunberg. Can you uh, give me an idea of what, how, how do you evaluate her, her contribution? What, what does she represent? Um, I think her biggest contribution has just been her willingness to say what needs to be said in a way that's really jarring and really hard for people to ignore. I mean, of course, she's not saying anything new. She's, you know, drawing people's attention to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and their findings and all the other science. But I don't know, something about the way she's approached it and her determination to use whatever leverage she has by staying out of school. Um, and also the fact that that struck a chord with people from all over the world for various reasons has been really impactful. And I think whatever spokes people we can get for this cause, the better. But also as lots of people pointed out, she's not the first one who's a young person to kind of take on this role. I think um, around the time when the UNFCCC was starting, uh, David Suzuki's daughter also did a similar thing and sort of made this big speech that was so like carried all over the world and I don't know hopefully we don't need 
more iterations of this over time and people will finally just get the message and act on it, but we'll see, I guess. It's been a bad year in terms of mm -hmm. climate change. Yeah, I think unfortunately now they're pretty much all bad years for climate change. I think four of the five warmest years on record were in the five past years or something like that. I forget the exact um, statistics, but yeah, it, it's getting quite repetitive with these statistics year on year, unfortunately. And we keep breaking records that we don't want to be breaking and more and more people are impacted by more and more types of both extreme events, but also like slow onset events, such as temperature rise and sea level rise and stuff like that. How do you sleep, Fatine? <laughs> well, we have a lot of work to do, so very tired, but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's difficult to continually work on these issues and really process what the documents and the latest science is telling you. So first of all, um, we don't talk in your world, we don't talk about global warming anymore. We, the terminology is climate change. Like it's happening. Now we're you're focused on dealing with it. There's not any question of um, that there isn't seismic change ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason we don't talk about global warming um, as much anymore is that climate change kind of encompasses global warming, but also all of the other impacts that um, are happening as a result of it. And also because it can cause some confusion because there's extremes on both, there can be extremes on both ends. Some people, if there's a particularly cold day, they might kind of have this cognitive dissonance when they say, oh, well, there's global warming, but it's extra cold today. So we tend to talk about climate change more often because yeah, it's just more of an accurate descriptor of all of the changes in the climatic system that are happening. In terms of your work, it, it seems like um, there's a one focus to reduce the, um, emissions and reduce the climate, the risk of change. But there's a whole other aspect of the focus, which is adaptation. This is happening. Like, and it doesn't seem like there's been, from what I'm, from my homework, it doesn't seem like there's been much success on the reducing the risk um, department, but um, you're doing a lot in terms of adaptation. Can you tell me about all this? It's Yeah, so essentially, broadly speaking, there's two, types of responses to climate change. So there's what we call mitigation, which is um, efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but there's also adaptation, which are efforts to kind of make adjustments um, in response to both the impacts and the risks that you're dealing with now, but also what's projected to happen in the future based on you know data and climate models and stuff. So these are the two major categories. Um, I work more so on the adaptation side, which is quite interesting because it encompasses so many different potential actions and processes. Um, so it can be anything from putting up a seawall to deal with flooding or you know, changing the type of crop you grow or growing more um, drought resistant crops or I don't, it just, there's so many different types of um, 
actions that can be adaptation depending on what risks you're dealing with, what vulnerabilities you have. And I and part of your work is identifying those vulnerabilities. Um, we help. So, Secretariat, a big part of our work is helping facilitate the international negotiations on adaptation. So those happen generally twice a year in a normal year, but also we support a range of expert bodies that have been established under the Convention on Adaptation. Um, so these expert bodies do a lot of different things, but that can be like technical analyses on, for example, how to monitor and evaluate your adaptation, or it can be um, analyses on private sector involvement in adaptation actions. So it's a lot of analyzing um, the literature, analyzing the reports that we get from countries to see what they're actually doing and what the trends are. Um, so we're not on the ground actually looking at who's vulnerable to what and what they can do, um, but we're working more at the international level and helping to guide these processes and kind of doing whatever countries feel is necessary to help their work in this area. Let's, what does your day look like? What do you actually do? Uh, so it depends what time of year it is. So most times of the year I am working on either some sort of paper or some sort of, you know, briefing notes or something like that or speaking notes to support um, either people within the secretariat or members of the bodies that we support as they engage on these issues in different expert meetings or yeah we have um, papers that are mandated to us either as a secretariat or the bodies that we support we help them as they prepare their analyses so I do a lot of researching a lot of writing um, sometimes there's meetings with these bodies um, or meetings with other stakeholders that um, engage in our process. So those are the typical day-to-day -day things. And then usually we have a couple of actual meetings of these expert bodies that we support twice a year. And then during those, it's a lot of note-taking on what they wanna see reflected in the documents or work that they want the secretariat to um, help them with. So we take notes of those and, you know, make action items and make sure we have an accurate record of the meeting. Um, and then usually in a typical year, we have two big conferences each year. Um, there's typically one in June, which happens in Bonn. And then there's the uh, big so-called COP, which happens in uh, November or December usually. And then during those, it's just a completely different atmosphere. That's when, you know, we get tens of thousands of delegates and negotiators from all over the world coming. And usually so far I've been doing negotiation support for these um, events, which is again, a lot of note-taking and helping the co-facilitators of negotiation items to have an accurate reflection of the different positions and, you know, researching precedents and you know language that can be used in decisions and just I don't know it's a crazy time where we just don't really get a lot of sleep or a lot of time to do anything and just whatever needs to be done you just have to do it it's also logistical support so making sure that countries have um, 
physical rooms to talk to each other if they need to sort something out and they have the equipment they need or yeah it varies quite a bit I, it's, maybe you can't tell me about this, but when you talked about countries having a room to meet, what kinds of things, so is there cross national um, planning done and how does that work? What's that all about? Um, so there's- or They have to agree uh, on things or- Yeah, I mean, in the negotiations, there's a lot of different types of negotiations there. And it's very confusing because there's, formal negotiations or cons consultations, and then there's informal consultations, then there's informal, informal consultations. So it, it all depends, like the differences those types of things make is with respect to who can be in the room um, and you know what is expected from those sessions and whatnot, like whether the secretariat's there, uh, whether observers are allowed in, and um, sometimes they just need a room to make progress and discuss things all night. So they'll say, you know, we, we're not making progress in these consultations. So just we'll make this available. And if you want to use it to continue like hammering out the differences, you can, it's, it's there and it's up to you whether you use it or not. Um, and then there's also the Secretariat makes available rooms for um, groups to, to coordinate because there's typically negotiation blocks um, in the process. So they typically have, I think, daily coordination meetings where they discuss different issues and their, what stances they're gonna take because um, that obviously increases their influence and they have common interests in a lot of areas. So that's how the negotiations usually work. You know, you're probably gonna find this so flippant, but it sounds a little bit like Harvard model, United Nations, when you guys would have your breakout sessions, sessions and, and, and the kids would all be, you know, shooting their mouths off and showing off. But it sort of has a similar, uh, similar vibe in terms of organization. That's so funny. Oh, my God, you must just pinch yourself. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do think back to that time sometimes. And I'm like, wow, this wasn't so far off. <laughs> funny. I can't believe it. Um, oh, I'm going to ask you a political question and, and you can say you don't want to answer it. Um, but uh, even just from model United Nations, you could see that it took forever for things to get decided. And I'm thinking, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, you're thinking of all these different bodies and countries and um, interests. It, is it really slow? Is it really impossible a lot of the time to actually get stuff done? and get agreement and? Um, it's, it's not impossible. I mean, we have usually several decisions each year. And what's interesting about our process is it's completely consensus-based. So any single country can, you know, say no, and then the whole thing, you know, will not go forward, which is in contrast to other voting-based processes. Um, but I think when you consider that, you actually appreciate how much has happened. I mean, the fact that we have the convention and the Paris Agreement and decisions each year on different work programs and how they should move forward and stuff. I think it's pretty amazing, especially when you sit in the negotiations and you see how they get from point A to when they gavel the decisions at the end. Um, yeah, it's it seems 
impossible, but it's not. And it's actually quite inspiring when you see how people compromise and, you know, try to work for the common interest. Wow. So it must be pretty thrilling sometimes when the gavel falls after months of work. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have never, I wasn't at the Paris Agreement one, which was the big moment of relief. Um, and that sort of gaveling is all over the media all the time. But the one in 2018, when they agreed the Paris rule book was also pretty exciting. So that was nice. We're usually very tired at the end, but it's still very exciting. <laughs> Thrilled and exhausted. Because it feels really hard when you're just an ordinary person trying to think about these issues and you just have to hope that there are people who are parts of big systems um, addressing things globally. Um, how are you hopeful? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think <clears throat> I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful some days and I think that the Paris Agreement gives us a really good basis for action because it has this mechanism where it gets progressively more and more ambitious over time. So every five years, countries have to submit um, new commitments and they have to be um, more ambitious than the previous ones. So it's an acknowledgement. It's a really smart way to do it because it's an acknowledgement that we're not going to get there right away. Like the first commitments that countries produce aren't going to solve the problem. But over time, they can, you know, build on what they've done and build on their capacity to do more and more. So I think we have the tools to do what we need, whether we, you know, do it now is the only issue. Oh, um, okay, so tell me about, let's just talk just a little bit about you left high school and um, you're one of those people who can you know, I, I'm going to compliment you. So just get over it. You could do anything. And, um, and how did you figure out what it was that you wanted to do? Um, I, I don't know. I feel like I kind of just stumble into things. So I started university planning to pursue a physics degree and just wasn't really feeling that into it when I started, um, especially the labs and all of the hands-on stuff. I just thought this isn't what I want to do over the long run. And then I was just looking in the course book and saw, okay, in psychology and political science, there's interesting courses. And this is what I find myself gravitating to in my free time and in the books that I read for fun. So I just switched to those topics and then really enjoyed myself and kind of went with it. And yeah, then I pursued a graduate degree also in political science, but more so with a focus on the environment because that's an interest that was growing in my um, last two years of university, especially. And yeah, it just ended up in this career. <laughs> you didn't just end up. Um, you had a, an, I feel like you had an important professor, uh, Dolderman, who did, course in environmental psychology. What was that about? Yeah, I think he was very influential for me. He, he does a lot of courses, including just intro to psychology, like Psych 101 and intro to social psychology and stuff. And he's a very um, passionate professor and very engaging. And I just 
found myself connecting to um, his teaching style and what he, uh, yeah, the materials that he shared with us, but also how he shared it with us. And he was an environmental psychologist. So that field encompasses a lot of things, um, including how people, you know, pr process cognitively things like climate change, how they make environmentally related um, decisions and whatnot. And so that was very interesting. And also he just spoke very candidly about the climate crisis and what needs to be done. And he was also um, an activist and, you know, spoke to us about some uh, like rallies he's attended and the impact they had on him and stuff. So I found him very influential and a lot of the books he recommended were also very influential on me on climate change. So that I think strengthened an already nascent interest that I had had in the topic. After you um, finished your master's, you found your way to Bonn. Um, it was during my master's actually. So for the collaborative specialization in environmental studies, which is this arrangement with the School of Environment at the University of Toronto, St. George, because at the time they didn't have a master's degree just in environmental studies. So you would be admitted to some base degree or some home degree, and then you can apply to do this environmental um, collaborative specialization where you would take some environmental courses. And as part of that program, you also had a mandatory internship. So I, I wasn't really interested in most of the internships that were in Toronto. I found them to be not really related to politics um, and especially not to international politics, which is what I had focused on during my master's degree. So I looked elsewhere and just tried for some of the United Nations ones. And I probably applied for so many and were, was reje rejected by quite a few, but then ended up getting this one, which was the dream one of all of them. And so, yeah, that's what started my journey with the UNFCCC. So you, you did your internship there and you did some work um, in Ottawa and then you found your way back to Bonn. Yes. Yeah, so I um, came back after my internship to finish my uh, master's thesis and wrap up the degree. And then I ended up the next year in Ottawa for five months supporting the G7 presidency um, on their environmental objectives. And then afterwards ended up back in Bonn to join the fellowship program. Wow. And now um, you have a, a different post What's your official job description? Um, the job description is like four pages. <laughs> so I, yeah, we use this general term associate program officer, which is I think any of the substantive programs. Um, if you have one of the professional posts in the UN, they're pretty standardized. So at P2, you're associate program officer typically, or unless you're in the communications division, then it's associate communications officer. But essentially, it's um, a junior post supporting the substantive side of one of the programs or divisions, which in my case is the adaptation division. Wow. Okay. I'm asking everybody for the last question. What do you want to learn next? 
What do I want to learn next? Well, most immediately German. I'm starting a course tomorrow, which is not a self-paced course for the first time. Um, but I think more broadly, I'm interested in learning yeah, more about the finance side of things and diving deeper into um, yeah, finance, but also private sector engagement and how they can get involved with adaptation. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you. And next time you're in Toronto, whenever that might be, please call so we can have a cup of sure. tea. Yeah, let me know how everything's going. I'm so proud of you. So nice. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 I caught up with Fatine again recently. She's hard at work and feeling pretty optimistic as she prepares for the next UN International Climate Conference. That's the COP26, and it's happening in Glasgow in November. Watch for news about that. Oh, and that University of Toronto professor that Patine spoke of is Dr. Dan Dolderman. Lots of my former students have actually taken his courses, and I've even snuck into a few of his classes myself over the years. Fascinating person. You can look him up. The original music for this episode was composed and performed by my former students, Ashley Rivera, Myla Carlos, and Chloe Sue. I hope you subscribe to this podcast series and leave your comments. If you're curious, you can watch a short video version of this episode on the Teaching the Teacher YouTube channel. Please follow us on Instagram at Teaching the Teacher or on Facebook too. Share, subscribe, send questions, leave comments. Thank you in advance for your support. Many thanks to Ken Yu and Maeve and Una Debit-Tremblay for helping get this podcast off the ground. Post-production editing support was generously provided by Cameron Bryson, Pierre Tremblay, and Joseph Debit-Tremblay. And remember, stay in touch with your teachers. You can be sure they haven't forgotten about you.